Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games is the best place to get MTGA arena codes. From booster packs to awesome cosmetics, check them out at greyvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT for 10% off. Hi everyone, this is Drafting Archetypes. I'm Sam Black, and today we are going to talk about the remaining color pairs in Strixhaven. So I've already gone over all of the normal colleges, and I've talked about Demir, which is the off-college color pair that I personally like the most, but I haven't talked about the other kind of like off-plan archetypes that you could theoretically draft. So that's what we're going to cover in this episode. And for anyone who is a, a limited guru or higher level patron, you can follow along with the notes now. Those are already up on patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. So to get right into it, we are going to talk about four different archetypes here. So I'm not going to go super deep into any of them. They're not super deep. I've drafted only some of these. I've seen all of them at least a little bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, like these are archetypes where like, even now at the absolute end of the format, 17 lands has very, very little data about these decks because they get played so rarely and it's correct that they get played rarely. You shouldn't play them very often, but there are coherent decks here in at least some of these color combinations. So it's good to know. What you can do with them, should you find yourself in a spot where that's what the draft dictates. Again, it's going to be really, really rare. I suspect, you know, we're talking like around 1% of drafts. You should be in one of these archetypes. Um, so that's a fraction of a percent each. You know, for the sake of completion, I figured it was worth going over briefly what stuff exists in this space. So... As far as like, how do you end up in like an off college deck? Like, why would you ever be in this space? How should your drafting be different to like be open to this or whatever? I think for the most part, you shouldn't be looking to. But if you think about how I've talked about staying open in some of the like kind of more multicolor archetypes, basically, if you're starting by just taking the best cards without trying to be a particular college, especially if you open on some monocolored cards for flexibility, you might just coincidentally be in a seat where you take allied colored cards and maybe you're suspecting that you're going to play a lot of colors and then you just like don't see fixing or you keep seeing cards in those colors. I think the most likely thing that's going to put you in this space is when you start with a single color extremely powerful rare or mythic card and a few of them support specific plans really really well. Movinda is the mythic 2-3 flyer that lets you recast spells from your graveyard but they cost extra if they don't target your creatures is the best reason to draft Selesnya. And Sedgemore Witch is kind of the best enabler for Rakdos. And like Sparring Regimen, I think actually plays super well in Azorius. And obviously these really powerful monocolored cards are also really good in their guilds, but there might be something exceptional that they do in one of these kind of like off college decks. Alternatively, just the fact that you're starting with this really, really strong monocolored rare means you really don't want to give up that color. 
but it's possible that the colors that pair with it aren't open in your in your draft. And so when you like hold on to this rare, but draft support cards in the open color, that could lead to a situation where you just naturally end up being an allied colored pair. And that's not necessarily disastrous if you know how to take advantage of it in your position to do that. So I think that's kind of like the story on how you get here. So let's talk about what to do when you're here in the various places, wherever here happens to be. So with Azorius, I think there are like three kind of different, like pulls toward different strategies or different kinds of decks that hypothetically exist in this space. There is the Skies deck, then there's kind of like a Prowess deck, and then there's the Spells Control deck, where you're combining the ideas from the Demir school of thought with the white control stuff, but without all the extra colors, which is to say, basically, you just have a bunch of like expels and rise of exoduses and pop quizzes and serpentine curves and barian books and hopefully as few other commons as possible and, you know, curate and stuff. There is at this point a little bit of data on how these decks have been played on 17 lands and serpentine curve is a very highly played card in Azorius, but a very unsuccessful card. And my takeaway from that is that people overplay it in Azorius, which is to say that they're probably using it in decks that have a bunch of flying creatures where it's not a good fit, the same way that it often doesn't work well in Quandrix decks that have a few too many creatures for it. So I think for the most part, you do not want to play Serpentine Curve in Azorius, but it is hypothetically possible to end up in a space where you just get a whole bunch of removal and cantrips and learn cards and that's what your deck is doing. More likely, I think you're going to be on more of the prowess aggro slash skies and there's some overlap there kind of space. Brief aside, uh, something that I meant to touch on for every color. Much the way that in sealed deck, if your pool's not very good, you might want to try to be aggressive so that you uh, end the game before your opponent has a chance to take advantage of the fact that their pool is just stronger than yours, has more bombs or whatever. I think with all of the guild-specific decks, your card pool is kind of just like weaker than your opponent's on average because you don't get the powerful gold cards that exist. So I think it's a, you're in a similar space where you just want to be aggressive. I mean, that's kind of the nature of two-color decks versus more than two-color decks in this format in general, because the multicolored decks, once they get going, have access to powerful spells from all over the place, whereas the two-color decks, you want to really be pushing, uh, taking advantage of the fact that you're not spending your mana resources, so tapped lands and uh, playing things to fix your mana and stuff to like get set up. So you want to like take advantage of the extra power and consistency that you get from having untapped lands in two colors to apply pressure to your opponent. So all of these decks will generally fare better if they can lean more aggressive. So the way to be aggressive with blue and white is to prioritize, I think, largely the interaction between flying creatures, which white offers combat professor but then the other flying commons are not very good you're talking about like stone rise spirit and pillar drop rescuer so you get like your combat professor from white and then maybe a little bit of extra support and then you get to pair that with frost trickster and waterfall aerialist and the one mana o2 flying uncommon in blue plays really really well here when you start pairing like playing that thing into guiding voice now you have a really like good 
evasive early threat that's applying a lot of pressure to your opponent. And so I, I think the biggest thing that's going on is a bunch of flyers, like more flyers potentially, or more cheap aggressive flyers than Silver Quill has, debatably, depending on how you value various things. But basically, like Frost Trickster is really good in the Silver Quill style aggro flyers kind of strategy. So you can pair that with Guiding Voices. Uh, Thunderous Orator plays really well in this archetype because you have Frost Trickster and uh, potentially the O2 flyer to give it flying. Waterfall Aerialist is a good place to like put the counters from Enthusiastic Study or whatever due to having the ward. Makes it a little harder for your opponent to answer. And then you can use Silver Quill Pledge Mage as an additional flyer. It's a little bit hard to cast, but it works. You can also use Study Break as a tempo card. I will note Study Break also weirdly had pretty bad stats in this archetype on 17 lands. Don't have a great explanation for that. Might be the fact that it was being paired with Serpentine Curve and trying to be used more defensively rather than like in a tempo type role. In a tempo role, it seems like it should play pretty well here, but the stats don't back up it being ideal. Eager First Year is probably the two drop of choice for this archetype. It doesn't have flying, but it does have prowess. You're going to be casting a lot of spells. What you really want is Thunderous Order and Professor of Symbology. Failing to get the good uncommon two drops, Eager First Year is the common you're going to want to lean on. And then if you have a lot of Guiding Voices, you can uh, play Sunrise Spirit. Eager First Year will do a good job getting some damage in, getting you into a spot where you can uh, win a race with your flyers. Yeah, that's what's going on. There can be larger and smaller, like, prowess packages with, like, you know, dipping more into Quandrix Pledge Mage, which is not advisable. That card doesn't do very well in general. You can take a note from the Selesnia playbook, and you can combine Quandrix Pledge Mage with Beaming Defiance. Beaming Defiance in general is pretty solid in this archetype, uh, especially once you're doing the, like, Guiding Voice Expanded Anatomy thing. Being able to protect that on a flyer is good. Pillar Drop Rescuer, I think, is actually a lot better here than it is in the white colleges, uh, both because you're more likely to be stretching for playables, so the fact that it's, you know, not good enough to make those decks. Here, like, you don't have anything better, which I'm going to try to frame as a strength. But, like, really, there's not a lot of competition at five mana, and importantly, returning Frost Trickster in particular with Pillar Drop Rescuer is really, really strong. Obvious reasons. It gives you more Frost Tricksters, which is the primary thing that your Skies, your, like, Aggro Skies deck is about. That's Kind of my quick take on what's going on with Azorius. So moving on to Selesnya. So if Azorius is similar to Silverquill in that it's evasive aggro, Selesnya is similar to Lorehold in that it's like tricks aggro. So flyers are prioritized less, combat tricks are prioritized more, and you're more likely to just be, you know, I attack with something, my opponent blocks it, and then I play some kind of trick to give me an advantage here. Or I play a creature, my opponent plays a creature, I play Mage Duel so that my creature gets bigger and kills their creature, and I attack and push some damage. And, I mean, Heated Bait does a similar thing in Lower Hold to what Mage Duel is doing in Selesnya. So, as far as just, like, matching play patterns and maybe something about what maybe that can inform some of uh, what you already know about which white cards you like where. Selesnya is closer in play pattern to Lorehold than it is to Silverquill. And then the reverse is true for Azorius. As I mentioned, there exists a little bit of 17 lands data about these archetypes, but not a lot. I did look into it, and I noticed some weird 
just really like puzzling data quirks uh, comparing Azorius to Slesnia. Specifically, Slesnia theoretically wins more overall. However, most of the commons, just in general and the same common overlapping, have better win rates in Azorius than they do in Slesnia. So the deck that wins less often, the commons in it win more often, which I don't have a good explanation for outside of, I guess, maybe Slesnia uh, is just leaning really highly on cards at higher rarities. That's that's my best guess, because the commons don't do well in this archetype, relatively speaking. Also, we're looking at small sample sizes here, just very much small sample sizes across the board, but the data provided by them is a little bit weird. Guiding Voice has a 2.5% higher game in hand win rate than the next best common in Selesnia, uh, which is Professor of Zoomancy. So like that's a big jump between the top common and the second common, and it's guiding voice is the absolute best in Selesnia. So take that with a grain of salt because it's small sample size data, but also it's a big jump where guiding voice is way ahead of everything else. Professor Zoomancy second, that's not terribly surprising. Zoomancy has very good stats across the board. Mage Duel is third highest, and it's 3% lower than Professor of Azumancy. So there's a 5.5% gap between Mage Duel and Guiding Voices, which is nuts. Again, I have to mostly credit that to small sample sizes, but it really says a lot about like what, what data we have says Guiding Voices is absolutely critical to this archetype. And then, weirdly, Beaming Defiance and Eager Cadet are right after Mage Duel. Now, Beaming Defiance as the highlight of Selesnya isn't terribly surprising to me because I think that Selesnya is often about maximizing exactly Mavinda or Dragon's Guard Elite, and uh, Beaming Defiance is a great way to protect one of those high rarity creatures that are really strong in the archetype. But what is kind of surprising to me is so Beaming Defiance and Eager First Year are both ahead of Combat Professor which is weirdly just like very, very low. Combat Professor just doesn't do well in this archetype. And then further weird data about Selesnya. The absolute worst performing card that there is a good amount of data on is Quandrix Pledge Mage. So to give you an idea of what some of these numbers that I'm working with are, Guiding Voice is around like 65% or something. Game and Hand win rate. Combat Professor, 47. Quandrix Pledge Mage, 42. So Quandrix Pledge Mage is just awful, which is really strange because, as I mentioned, Sarkotype is potentially drafted around Dragon's Guard Elite, but Quandrix Pledge Mage is uh, quite a bit worse. Take what you want from that. Note, I've been a you know, longtime advocate for not valuing 3-mana T2s very highly, and that just applies to Quandrix Pledge Mage, even in this archetype, which I think I had kind of suspected might literally be like the Quandrix Pledge Mage archetype, where it's like, okay, cool, I have Quandrix Pledge Mage and then spells to protect it. But I do think that you want to be more white-based than green-based, so the mana's awkward on Quandrix Pledge Mage. The side, like, it just starts pretty small. It's, it doesn't line up well in the format, so I would say... Even when you're in this space and you're playing all of the things that look like they should be the right support cards, maybe maybe still don't prioritize Quandrix Pledge Mage specifically. 
So what does that mean you should be prioritizing? I don't know. Professor Azumancy, your first year are the creatures that do the best. So how about those? And then like whatever else you happen to find with good support spells. I think that it's kind of more about like pairing Guiding Voice with Mage Duel and, you know, Beaming Defiance and even like Big Play Study Break and then just cast those creatures on whatever bodies you happen to have around. But obviously, you know, sample sizes are small there, but, you know, because the sample sizes are small, the gaps are big, which again points to the gaps are probably exaggerated but when the gaps are really big it feels like it's making a you know reasonable statement directionally anyway that's that's what i was able to find there with the data and then my just intuition about the archetype is broadly speaking it wants to play like aggressive lore hold next up i suppose i will touch very briefly on green red only to say I can't think of any reason that you should play green-red. It has the worst performing win rate of all the archetypes on 17 lands at like 44%. I think it's kind of like a bad version of Lorehold aggro and a bad version of Selesnya aggro. You're just like some ground creatures and some tricks and some removal, but like I can't find anything that seems meaningfully better than the sum of its parts. There's enthusiastic study that you can like pair with big play to like give trample plus extra pumps, but that's not particularly unique or valuable. It's unsupported. They didn't throw it a bone. I don't know why you would play green red specifically. Little to no saving grace there as far as I'm concerned. The time when I guess I was most tempted to think about it was like when I opened crackle with power and it's like, oh, if I play this and some field trips, maybe I can do a big crackle. But like, if that's your what you're trying to do, just play Teamer instead. Like, there it's there's no way that you want to be like, I'm gonna ramp a bunch of mana in into play and play a late game, and I don't want to include blue. Blue just offers so much to that strategy. So yeah, uh, I I really try to you know cover what I can about like when you're in this spot, here's how to do it, and I got nothing for Gruel. I just think it's bad. So that moves us on to Rakdos. To my mind, Rakdos revolves around pests. I think that Rakdos, like Demir, is all about lessons and learn cards, but unlike Demir, it is aggressive. Instead of uh, Arcane Subtraction and Pop Quiz, you have First Day of Class and Enthusiastic Study. Those are much, much, much worse if you are a control deck, but quite a bit better if you're aggressive. And first day of class and enthusiastic study both play really well with pests. Uh, enthusiastic study allows you to just attack all of your pests into whatever your opponent has, use the study to kill their blocker, push some damage, learn again. First day of class sets up the five mana play of first day and a pest summoning, make f uh, two, two, two hasters, which doesn't sound all that exciting, but it's actually pretty good, especially given the flexibility of first day of class to just like do other stuff, you know, just like two mana instant to learn to find whatever you need. You can also pair it with just like unwilling ingredient or eye twitch or something for three mana to just like get some value out of it. A reason this exists is first day of class and enthusiastic study both go really, really late. So if you just want, like if you're looking to pair two colors and get as many learn cards as possible, Rakdos is a great place to do it because 
Black gives you access to cram session, hunt for specimens, and rise of extus. And then red gives you very late first day of class and enthusiastic study. So you just get to spend a lot of picks taking learn cards. And then what you want is multiple copies of pest summoning and necrotic fumes. Um, and then also, you know, every other lesson is going to give you more tools and it's going to be good. But the reason that I want pest summoning so much is that pest summoning will both, you know, I think is one of the best lessons for taking advantage of first day and enthusiastic study, but it also allows you to use village rights and plum the forbidden well. And once you have those, and ideally, like, necrotic fumes, then you can start to do this deal and sack stuff with Claim the Firstborn and Mascot Exhibition, both of which are both uncommon, so there aren't a lot of them, but they both go very late. So you can realistically expect to get multiple of them in a deck. You don't want to play the Dissector or whatever, the horrible four drop that lets you spend mana to sacrifice things, but you don't need to. If you have a Necrotic Fumes, it gives you consistent, reliable access to a way to sacrifice your opponent's creature in a way that's very profitable. So I think that the entire like steal and sack concept entirely revolves around drafting Necrotic Fumes. Once you have Necrotic Fumes, you can do this thing, and without it, you really shouldn't try to. But once you're there and you have the Necrotic Fumes and you're doing this, then it's also nice to be able to play the other the other sack outlets, uh, Village Rights and Plum, so that you can do the thing for less mana and so you can, you know, not need to pair it with a learn card and you just get uh, more flexibility and stuff, especially in a spot where those cards can be good in your deck anyway. That's kind of like the backbone of what you're trying to do. So if your deck is based on having a whole bunch of learn cards and a bunch of pest summonings, and a lot of your learn cards cost two mana, like Cram and Hunt and somewhat first day of class, then you don't really want to prioritize three mana creatures because you're expecting to play pests on turn three. So don't draft them. Just like don't prioritize the common three mana creatures. You might have to play one or two if you end up with it. Like it's not the end of the world if you end up with like a you know, random Silver Quill or Lorehold Pledge Mage in your deck or a Tome Shredder or whatever, but never go out of your way to take a three-mana creature. You want to be taking two-mana creatures, four-mana creatures, removal spells, learn cards, even one-mana creatures like Unwilling Ingredient, and especially Eye Twitch. Eye Twitch is great. But you mostly, like, this is a really, really spell-heavy deck, ideally, because you just want tons of learn cards and removal. So your expensive cards should just be removal. Mage Hunter's Onslaught, Pigment Storm, Rise of Exodus... It's okay to play Spectre of the Fens, Pillar Drop Warden, maybe even Witherbloom Pledge Mage. And then you want just like cheap removal, like Lash of Malice, and then as much of the learn stuff as you can get, maybe Heated Debate, and then you want to just go like, I do learning, I play pests, I kill your things that stop, that block my pests well, your removal spells are bad against me because I'm just making pests. And so you end up playing an attrition game where you just like play these random pests that your opponent doesn't have a good way to deal with. So they're trying to block, but their blockers don't work because your deck is full of removal because you are, you know, Mage Hunter's Onslaught and Pigment Storm are not actually that bad in your deck. And so you just uh, kill other creatures and grind them out and you build up some card advantage from the stuff that your lessons are doing. Notably, Sedgemore Witch is perfect for this archetype because you want to be spell-heavy anyway, and you want pests. It does all that. It's so good in this archetype, and so obviously leads to this archetype, that 
more Rakdos decks on 17 lands have played Sedgemore Witch than iTwitch. iTwitch being an uncommon that's a high priority for those decks, but despite the fact that Sedgemore Witch is rare and iTwitch is uncommon, uh, Sedgemore Witch is so good and it's like such a high portion of the reason to end up in Rakdos that it ends up being among the more played cards in Rakdos. I think that like the main things to look for in terms of like, okay, when can I let myself go here are uh, Sedgemore Witch and Necrotic Fumes. I think that this deck is kind of real. Like the stuff that it's doing makes sense. With this much learn, I would, you know, always hope to find an environmental sciences and then you can include some other colors. Uh, if you're really, really spell and removal heavy, you can splash blue for like Serpentine Curve, which plays well with your first day of class, or you can splash green for Professor of Zoomancy, maybe some other big creatures. Maybe you can start doing some Tend the Pest stuff. Maybe you can try to pull off the Mondo combo of first day of class Tend the Pests. I think Rakdos is an archetype that can splash pretty well since it is playing a more kind of controlling, really attrition, but there is a, like control and attrition aren't far from each other strategically. So anyway, since it's playing that kind of game and prioritizing learning, it's pretty easy to pick pick up environmental sciences and some fixing and do splashing and end up in a slightly alternate universe version of Demir. Those are my quick hits on how to draft the other archetypes. So for anyone here in my audience on Twitch who has any questions, now would be a great time to ask any questions you have while I'm Waiting for that, I do want to thank my new patrons this week. Jeremy, Santiago, Patrick, Sam, and Diago. Really appreciate support on uh, patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes. Let's see if there are any questions. First question is the only real reason to go into the non-supported two-color pairs specific rares. I would say that it requires a specific rare to like actively look to go into one of those archetypes and even then it's pretty questionable but i mean broadly like where you when you should go into these things is when for some reason it's the only thing you can find that's open and the most likely reason that you are to get trapped into a spot where you can't find an open college is when you have gotten very attached to a single color rare that you've opened which isn't necessarily wrong. Like there are rares that are just worth holding on to. So that that's why I think that specific rares are most likely to lead you here where it, like it's kind of like there's not a good reason really is the answer. So if the question is like does it take a specific rare to want to do this? The answer is you shouldn't really want to do it. It doesn't it, there there's not even a specific rare that makes you want to do it. It's more this can happen to you and it's more likely to happen to you because of making reasonable decisions based on a, an, an amount of attachment that makes sense to a really, really strong rare, like Poet's Quill or Sparring Regiment or Sedgemore Witch or you know, any, any of the other really, really strong monocolored cards. So the follow-up question is, how do you identify that it's best not to just stick to one of the like main pairs for that card so like if you took sedgemore witch how do you identify that you're not supposed to just be silver quill or wither bloom and i think the answer is you're not presented with the opportunity to be those things so like you are trying to be silver quill or wither bloom presumably when you start with a sedgemore witch 
But if the people passing to you, if those gold cards aren't available at your table, maybe strong cards from one of them weren't opened early, or maybe just like the people in front of you or in both of them or whatever, this might be the person in front of you is just also in black, but they're taking like the good guild cards and kind of passing you the monocolored scraps. And maybe you, maybe they're just passing you very few black cards. And then blue or red ends up being the open color. So you, like you first pick a Sedgemore Witch and then get past like Igneous Inspiration or something. And then just start seeing like heated debates, but you don't want to get off your Sedgemore Witch. Then you might just find yourself far enough along in these colors that you start to say like, okay, well, do I want to abandon one of these? Well, I have strong cards in both of them can I make this work? And then this is about like, okay, once you're in that spot where these, this is just what's available to you, how do you make it work? To answer the follow-up to this, yes. It, it is largely like, the reason to be aware of these archetypes is largely about uh, making the best of like a bad situation where you're cut off from the, you know, central colleges. Cause like, obviously gold cards are strong and they give you a bunch of extra tools to use in the rest of the draft. So like in pack one, you wouldn't choose to commit to an allied colored pair because there are so many fewer cards that you'll have available to you in the rest of the draft. Even if you know you're getting some synergies, it would probably be better to be in a space where just like a larger number of cards in the format are gonna improve your deck. But when this is all that you can find and you are getting past good cards in it, you can make it work. So there's a reason that I say that, you know, all of these are niche decks that you should only be in, you know, 1% of the time collectively or something. And it is that for the most part, these aren't strategies that you want to actively pursue. This is about like when you are, you know, getting cut off and find yourself in this spot, how do you try to like salvage something and have like a cohesive playable deck in a color pair that wasn't necessarily particularly intentionally designed to lead to cohesive decks. So this is, this is very much, you know, how do you make lemons out of lemonade kind of, or lemonade out of lemons kind of situation or whatever you know, making do with what's available rather than like, oh, well now I should go try to draft Rakdos. I mean, of these decks, if you do like the idea of what's going on here and want to like try it out, try doing something different than you've done other drafts and stuff, I would say Azorius and Rakdos have the most coherent things going on and you might be able to make something useful happen there are certain key cards like to be rakdos I, I do think you need to find a necrotic fumes pretty early or something um and still have other stuff in the draft like go well you need to hope that the right uncommons are opened stuff the, the deck at least does something where it uses cards in a way that is uniquely available to that color pair the cards are better for you than they are for anyone else at the table which is kind of what you need to have a purpose which is the problem with gruel is that there aren't cards in red or green that are uniquely suited to play with cards from the other color that give you some kind of sum that's greater than the total of its parts. And that's that's why I didn't, you know, really go into like, well, what do you do here? I mean, if you're Gruul, I guess you just take the best cards that are available to you and hope it works. Whereas at least some of these other archetypes, there's a coherent plan that you can uh, work toward. All right. Looks like there uh, didn't happen to be a lot of questions about these ones, which is fine. Hopefully that means that I, you know, covered what little needs to be known about these archetypes. I believe that this will actually wrap up my coverage of Strixhaven now that I've talked about all the color combinations after 
finding all of the last bits to cover here. We are just now getting into uh, Forgotten Realms previews. I don't know where we're going to be at, whether there will be anything useful to talk about there next week, but there's a good chance that this will be my last episode about Strixhaven. So if you haven't uh, listened to the previous episodes and there are any archetypes in Strixhaven that you are curious about, you should be able to find some discussion of them uh, somewhere in the archives here. And that is going to do it for this week. Thanks for listening, everyone, and goodbye.